If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, the UK's best-selling history magazine. I'm David Musgrove, and welcome back to the third of our four-part podcast mini-series, a medieval masterclass with the historian Dan Jones. This was first recorded as a virtual lecture programme in the late summer of 2021, when Dan's book, Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, had just been published. And over the course of four episodes, I asked Dan to take us on a journey through the four ages of medieval history, from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, through to the dawning of Renaissance ideas and religious revolution. So in the first two sessions that you've already heard, we covered a fair bit of ground. We started in the 5th century and we got up to the early 13th century. This time we're going to be lasering in on a much shorter period of time, 1215 to 1347, and the title of today's session is Rebirth. So to recap, in our last session we finished up talking about the Crusades and the changing geopolitical situation that resulted from the development of the Crusader kingdoms in the Holy Land. Now we're going to have another big geopolitical shift with the rise of the Mongols. And uh, when Dan does his overview of the period, in just a second, he will start off with the Mongols, and that's what you'll hear next. And then after his introduction, he and I will dissect some of those key themes in a bit more detail. And just a reminder, if you want to watch the video of our conversation and enjoy the extended original audience Q&A that we had in the live masterclass session, you can do that at our website at historyextra.com forward slash video, um, though you do need to be a website subscriber to access that content. So anyway, over to Dan to introduce us to the Age of Rebirth, 1215 to 1347. When I conceived this book, Powers and Thrones, one of the uh, the questions I wanted to pose and to answer, hopefully, was what was the nature, what were the, what were the natures of power in the Middle Ages. What were the powers? Now, in the past, I'd written dynastic histories like the Plantagenets, where the the study of power was essentially political and constitutional, um, exercised through monarchies. I'd written 
books about the Templars and Crusades, uh, Crusaders, in which power was uh, still somewhat political, but also expressed in military terms and in, in faith terms. But I was conscious that uh, that's actually quite a narrow vision of any society, uh, including medieval society, including the Middle Ages. And what I've really wanted to do in Powers and Thrones, and that's why that little S is there, is to explore uh, the, the, the multitude of different powers that shaped the medieval world. And that's what this section of, uh, of the book and, and this episode of, uh, of the, this, this masterclass is, is going to do. We're going to range across quite a lot of territory. I mean that geographically as well as thematically. We talked in the first masterclass about the inheritance of Rome, and I posed the idea that in the early Middle Ages, it was the forces of Islam, the first uh, Islamic caliphates, the rise of the Arabs, that, they, that this was the, the military um, power, the imperial power that had the best claim to be the, the true inheritors of the Roman Empire in the West, in the Mediterranean world. And that certainly, I think, holds, I, I believe that holds true for the early Middle Ages, but by the time we get to the later Middle Ages, the 12th and 13th centuries, there is uh, there's there are new powers, military powers um, at large in the world, and the greatest of those are, uh, is the Mongols, the Mongol Empire, established by Genghis or Chinggis Khan um, around the turn of the 12th into the 13th century, uh, expanded at extraordinary, a breakneck speed by Chinggis Khan by his generals, by his sons, and then by the, the successor Khans, such that by the middle of the 13th century, by the 1250s, 1260s, uh, the Mongols are indisputably a global superpower. They've assembled the biggest contiguous land empire um, that the world had seen to that point, and they, they briefly, for a couple of generations, held it together before that empire split into four um, with power blocks across uh, what's now China, Central Asia, um, Persia, and uh, southern, southern Russia into Eastern Europe. The legacy of the Mongols to the medieval world uh, was enormous, and the, the, uh, the effect that the Mongols had on the medieval imagination, particularly in Western Europe. Now, the Mongols never made it to, uh, to Rome and Paris, although the Mongol Khans were often... Um, keen to suggest that if they fancied it, they just might. Uh, they never made it uh, into Western Europe. However, there was a, a deep fascination with the Mongols, and uh, that was tinged with apprehension of the Mongols on the part of uh, of Christian kings. There was also a, a, an enduring and pervasive fantasy among popes and among kings that the Mongols were somehow the fulfilment of a prophecy, the prophecy of King David, or, or, or possibly of Preston John, this this uh, this faraway king just over the horizon, who either was Christian or might be converted to Christianity, and who could be persuaded to join forces with the crusading uh, Western powers of of, the, of Western Europe and the Mediterranean world, uh, and that the, these two could go and crush between them um, the forces of the Islamic world, who provided the bulk of the opposition in the Near and Middle East during the Crusading period. The Mongols also, uh, by virtue of their uh, merciless tactics in conquest and the sheer size of their, uh, of their conquests, uh, 
established what's sometimes called the Pax Mongolica. So this is similar to the Pax Romana or the Pax Britannica. It's the idea that an enormous empire provides a peace within its borders, no matter how um, uh, how fiercely or ferociously or pitilessly or mercilessly this empire has been established. That once, once established and held, uh, it provides a peace within its borders. And there was the sort of the... The trope, the myth about the uh, the Mongol Empire was that uh, a woman could walk naked with a, a gold vase on her head from one end to the other and not be uh, molested or, or robbed or mistreated in any way because of the fear of the, the inhabitants of the Mongol Empire held for the wrath of the Khans. Okay, so the first power that we're going to discuss in this masterclass is really the greatest military uh, imperial power of the later Middle Ages, arguably of the whole Middle Ages. That's the Mongols. Now, from there, we're going to shift our focus somewhat thematically because the next three chapters of Powers and Thrones, uh, which follow on from the Mongols, are entitled Merchants, Scholars and Builders. These are all chapters about the ways that power can be expressed in terms that are not solely military. Uh, and we'll get into the weeds of, of what that means, I think, as the, as the masterclass goes on. What I'd say is that they do they follow each other somewhat sequentially. So the chapter about merchants uh, begins with Marco Polo, and we can trace a line from the establishment of the Mongol Empire to an increasing interest in and busyness in uh, trade between the Mediterranean world and the Far East, which was aided by the stability that a large Mongol empire gave across the Silk Road. But the chapter about merchants and, and the study of merchants in the late Middle Ages takes in far more than simply trade networks between the West and the Far East. It's also about uh, the rising sophistication or and the growing sophistication of financial institutions, financial instruments, um, companies, merchant banks, uh, organisations that can facilitate credit transfer across borders. All of these in the 12th and 13th century began to really gain momentum and the medieval world developed an economic sophistication that it had it had lacked since arguably the, the fall of Rome and an interconnectedness as well. So we can talk about that and, we, and I, I deeply hope that uh, in the course of talking about uh, medieval merchants we'll get on to my um, really my my pet favourite uh, medieval figure of them all, who is Dick Whittington, the 15th century merchant extraordinaire and politician extraordinaire, who shows us how commercial power can actually be allied with political power. And these, these things can sort of can come together. The other two groups I want to talk about uh, are scholars, because in, in, around the same time, the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, see the rise in the West of the universities and uh, a renewal in um, intellectual inquiry and philosophical inquiry and uh, a sorting out of how new or, or revived interest in scholars from the ancient world, uh, particularly such as Aristotle, how the revival of old learning could be squared with, uh, with thinking about biblical texts and the uh, the dogma of the Latin church. So we can think a little bit about that because I think that the rise of the universities 
is one of the legacies of the medieval world, which we still feel very profoundly today. Last week, I was staying up in Cambridge because I was talking in Ely, and I stayed in my college, uh, Pembroke, which was founded in 1347, um, just at the end of the period we're going to be discussing today. And I was filled with the sense as we were there of not not quite that I was walking into a medieval institution, but there is an enormous sense of continuity in the oldest universities in this country and and across Europe uh, that dates back to the Middle Ages. And the first universities, Bologna, Oxford, Paris, um, really set a template that we we are still, to a degree, operating within today. There is a, con- a continuous line back to the Middle Ages in in the way that we think we organise learning at, at universities. And the final thing I want to talk about is building, because uh, that, um, somewhat like what I've just been saying about um, about universities, that is also something that links us very tangibly and visibly with the Middle Ages today. We can so if, if we want to, as it were, step back in time and, and travel back to the Middle Ages, the best way perhaps to do it is to go and visit either a castle or a Gothic cathedral. And thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people still do exactly that every year because whilst it can be difficult to put ourselves in an abstract sense back into the Middle Ages and to try and and understand and inhabit medieval worldviews, it's very easy to go and buy a ticket for seven or eight pounds or whatever it costs and uh, and go into one of these buildings and experience some of what it was would have been like to walk on a, a, a specific geographical spot five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years ago. Um, so though that is the uh, that's the the scheme of the next forty five minutes or so. We're going to move from. Uh, uh, the greatest political military power, the greatest military power, I should say, uh, through an exploration of other ways that power could operate in the medieval world, going from um, from the commercial to the scholarly to the architectural. First thing, um, I just want to clarify with you: um, uh, is it Genghis or Chinggis? What's what is this a Boudicca Boudicca thing? What's what's happening here? How should we refer to this guy? I think if you want to, you get. Chinggis, Chinggis Khan is uh, how most scholars say it properly, but I'm I'm um, a pragmatist in this regard uh, rather than uh, strictly politically um, sensitive and correct. And I think that uh, if you say Chinggis Khan, about half the time people will go, huh, who? And you go, yeah, Genghis Khan, but you're supposed to say Chinggis Khan. So Genghis Khan, Chinggis Khan, as you please, um, I don't mind. Okay. Other so- people do mind, but I don't. Well, probably I'll, I'll probably just mix and match for a bit then, uh, but I'll try not to. Um, so, okay, so so uh, so this guy, this this Chinggis Khan fellow, um, obviously a very famous uh, person. We all know about him. Um, just gives a bit of background. How did he come to power, uh, and how did he come to power so quickly and build such an empire with such rapidity? Well, in a way, Genghis Genghis Khan's story is uh, the you know one of the oldest in in the world. It's of a poor boy born to tri- tribal Mongolian society in or around 1160, who uh, whose family are cast out by the tribe for various reasons, and who then has to win his way back into favour. Um, 
he's all sorts of it's very hard to know with any great clarity what Genghis Khan Temujin is his name before he becomes Genghis Khan which means a very very loosely great conqueror uh, it's very hard to know with much specificity really what the the early life of Genghis Khan was all about um and that's because the secret history of the Mongols, which is the main source that we go to to look for um, information about uh, the rise of, of Temujin, Genghis Khan, is uh, suffused with legend and also quite cryptic. However, the, the bare bones of the story are this. A poor boy, cast out from, from society, makes his way back in and rises through, I mean, this generally seems to be a rise through force of personality to uh, the head of tribal society by drawing people to him, organising them, fighting other tribes within the the Mongolian world, but then having the wherewithal to to bring those he defeated and who who accepted or assented to his leadership uh, with him in building a larger and larger and larger and larger coalition until uh, by around the time, of, by the sort of midpoint of his life, he had um, become fairly uh, unassailably and unquestionably the, the strongman of Mongolian society and had been awarded the title Genghis Khan. There are certain things he does that enable him to hold together a Mongolian tribal society in a way that had not hitherto been possible. And a lot of those are administrative. Instead of um, uh, organising his military forces simply by allying different tribal groups, uh, he institutes uh, a completely new organisational system in the army based on units, decimal units of of troops uh, with loyalty to him personally as the highest, um, the highest quality to be most rewarded, and uh, with draconian dread punishments for anyone who steps out of line. And draconian dread punishments for anyone who steps out of line is the absolute bedrock of Mongolian conquest into the 13th century, all the way up to 1260. And although their armies are never enormous, they're extraordinarily well-disciplined, they're meritocratic, and uh, they are brutal. Um, they're, they're brutal to the point of um, absolutely destroying anybody and anything that stands in their way uh, or, sh- or offers any defiance. However, they're also um, uh, open-minded in the sense that if you immediately bow down and accept Mongol authority, uh, you will be drawn within the Mongol world uh, whether that's um, a good thing or a bad thing uh, is to be debated, but you, you won't be immediately slaughtered at any rate, um, and you'll be allowed to keep your life, um, even if your life changes rapidly. Um, all of that really, I think, stems from the character and the the worldview of Genghis Khan himself. And even, even after Genghis Khan's death, there, there is still... Uh, there is still the, the sort of DNA of what he'd been about is retained within um, within the Mongol military machine and the Mongol imperial machine. 
So that's interesting because we've seen a sort of few examples in, in the course of our discussions thus far of um, people whose personalities allow for something to happen in their lifetime, but then it kind of falls away afterwards. Um, but for, in, in this case, it seems that he is able to establish a bit of a legacy and the empire that he establishes like really, really quickly does then last after him for 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 a century or so isn't it so so what's what's what how does that happen does he does he institute that some sort of cultural legacy sort of the imbues of the people who follows him yes i think i think that's probably right i think the effect of well there are several things going on so on a personal level and um I think we, you know, we we do have to sometimes in history consider the powerful personality of an individual given the right circumstances um, is still, I believe, a moving historical factor. I know it goes in and out of fashion as to whether the, you know, and, and the great man theory really exists. But I think if you look across history as a whole, you see extraordinary um, characters you know, from Alexander the Great to um, Augustus to or, you know, or Julius Caesar, Augustus, um, Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, uh, all the way through to, you know, modern tyrants, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, um, before them, Napoleon. You know, you, you do, unquestionably throughout history, you do see individuals um, of uh, powerful, if not admirable, character walk the shape of history. And I think it's, I think it can be, I think it's perverse to ignore that. Uh, it also would be perverse to say that sheer sheer force of character alone is enough to get anything done. In the case of the Mongols, and in the case of Genghis Genghis Khan, I think what, what allows this particular man to rise through Mongol uh, tribal society is the fact that tribal society is weighted towards um, the influence of great men. But Genghis Khan does something quite interesting, which is he uses the, the, this force of personality and this uh, this cult of, of individual leadership and then changes the way that Mongol, certainly military organisation, but also tribal organisation works. So he he rises up through one system then and then changes the system after him, sort of pulls the ladder up. So the, so the system, having been um, perfectly primed for him, he then amends so it's sort of purely merit or it's conceived as being purely meritocratic, um, very organizational rather than sort of tribals be, tribes being locked together on an ad hoc basis. You have uh, the organization of the army in groups of 10, groups of 100, groups of 1,000, um, and there is a, a clear, quite modern military structure uh, to it, which is organized on, as I say, broadly meritocratic principles. And so I think I think that's that that insight at the beginning is what creates a war machine, which is which which then, uh, like many of the other imperial or imperializing war machines we've looked at in previous masterclasses, I'm thinking particularly of Charlemagne's armies. Um, but this is this is true of, of other conquering powers throughout the medieval world. It, it thrives on expansion. So the, the more that the, the Mongol Empire expands, the more it can reward its troops. And the more it can reward its troops, the more troops it has, and the more it can expand. So it's, it's an expansionist machine. Um, but 
just never stop. Well, it takes a long time to stop expanding. It's it's the 1240, you know, if Genghis Khan's born around 1160, it's the 1240s, even 1250s, by the time the Mongols have reached the Hungarian steppe in one direction and they're sort of towards Korea in the other direction and they've destroyed uh, the Khorasmians in Central Asia and in 1258 have killed the the Abbasid Caliph and burned half of Baghdad to the ground. And from the 1220s, rumours have been spreading around the Christian world that this is the great new coming superpower who's, who's sort of almost heralds uh, a complete step change in world history. Um, so I think those, 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 there's an organisational change with Genghis Khan. There's then uh, a good run of uh, imperial expansion. Um, part of which is founded on on I mean the um, the the mercilessness of Mongol tactics is something we should also consider, uh, and the willingness in the course of conquest to uh, to use scorched earth tactics that m- few other powers in world history have ever been able to bring themselves to contemplate. You know, to ride up to a city and say, uh, and this happens in, for example, in Merv. Uh, say, are you going to surrender? And if the answer is no, then the city is immediately, um, everyone's slaughtered, heads are piled up in gigantic piles outside, and the city may well be totally razed to the ground so there's nothing left to be seen of it. Now that serves as a warning to other cities that stand in the Mongols' path, surrender or die. Um, It also is... uh, it's a tactic that most advancing powers would not contemplate because the thought of uh, what's the point of winning a prize when you totally destroy it. But that's not that's not within the Mongol mindset. How extensive was the Mongol Empire? Very, very large. The largest contiguous land empire ever known from Korea is its furthest western expanse uh, to all the way around the top of the Black Sea uh, into um, Eastern Europe, and there are crusade. There are Western crusades called to defend the kingdoms of Poland and Hungary uh, in the twelve forties from uh, from Mongol attack. And it does look there are there are periods in the twelve forties and even the twelve fifties where it really looks like it's it's quite possible that um, Western Europe will fall, given an ill wind to the Mongols. And there are these very, very interesting exchanges of letters between, particularly in the 1250s, between Hulagu Khan, who's the Khan who uh, takes Baghdad and rolls the Abbasid Caliph Caliph up in a carpet and has him trampled to death by horses. Um, There is a great exchange of letters between him and Louis IX, Saint Louis, King of France, uh, sort of showing off to each other. And it's it's very clear, you know, which of these is the greater king? Now, Louis IX is one of the great kings of France. Um, but Hulagu Khan writes to him in sort of friendly terms, but uh, the imperiousness of uh, of the tone that he takes with this, this king somewhere over there in the West, uh, and his, um, his scorn towards all other non-Mongol leaders. I think he, he refers to the Mamluks, um, you know, slave soldier dynasty that had risen out of Egypt, had swept through the Islamic world, was, were the, the sort of power, the great threat that would uh, that would bring down the Crusader states uh, shortly afterwards. 
Um, and Hulagu Khan dismisses them as Babylonian dog mice, <laughs> which I think is, is a, it's a real burn. Um, and I think that, that of course, I mean, that's natural because by the time Hulagu Khan is, is on the scene, it's two generations into Mongol expansion and it just seems like they're going to take over the entire world. Why wouldn't they? They've been doing it for 60 years. It's all people like Hulagu Khan have ever known. There's no reason why they should stop where they've stopped. So... Uh, that, that, and that territorial expansion is, is, is an enormous degree of what gives people like Ulaga Khan their confidence. So what does happen though? Why, why, isn't, why doesn't Britain become part of the Mongol Empire? Why, why is their advance stopped? Well, because actually, um, I, I'm not going to say that their luck runs out, but there, there, are, there are lots of theories about why suddenly having looked like they're into Hungary, into the Balkans possibly, into Poland... Um, that they're just going to keep going. Suddenly, in the 1240s, they kind of turn around and and or that it just seems to stop. Now, part of the reason is probably actually territorial overreach because, of course, um, if you're the British Empire in the 19th century in the age of the telegraph, it's just about possible to communicate between, let's say, London and Delhi or London and, you know, the, the colonies in uh, the war in Southern Africa or whatever. In the Middle Ages, communication, even with... So now the Mongols invent a very rapid postal system. Even given that, communication is necessarily difficult between uh, the Mongol capital in what's now Beijing and... Um, I don't know, Legnitsa, which is where there's a, a big battle in the 1240s between the Mongols and uh, the Christian powers of, of Eastern Europe. So, uh, so the, the sheer size eventually becomes unsustainable. Uh, there are arguments that the grasslands of the Hungarian steppe are simply insufficient to feed the number of horses. So the, the Mongol army is, is cavalry, effectively, uh, it's insufficient to feed that number of horses, and they realise there's also a change in power in the Mongol Empire, uh, which demands that, uh, which has been argued that it demands that a lot of Mongol leaders have to go home and um, and witness the transfer of power. So quite what balance those factors, uh, what, we, what weight we give to those different factors in assessing the, the sort of end of the period of Mongol expansion is, is hard to say. But soon after that, but I think it's probably overreach. I think actually there is a limit to the size of the empire that you can, and we'd seen this with Rome. We'd seen this with Rome at the beginning of the period. You know, Rome got so big that you had this sort of peak Rome moment, kind of Trajan, Hadrian era, and then it's it's unsustainable. You end up having to have this thing partitioned and have Rome on the one hand, Constantinople on the other, and sometimes more capitals even than that. So that's that's kind of the story of imperial expansion, full stop. Um, so I think I think you know the 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 mass just becomes too big, and soon after um, the twelve forties, you see effectively a partition of the Mongol Empire into these four great chunks that then go their own way. You know, you have the Ilkhanate centred on Persia, which becomes uh, Islamic in character. You have the Great Yuan uh, in China, which becomes much more, you know, essentially Chinese rather than Mongolian and so on. And you have Golden Horde in Ru- Russia, Crimea, that sort of area. And they all take on the 
somewhat different forms and eventually fall to squabbling with one another. So, uh, so I think size is probably just too big for your boots, if you like. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Because by the early 14th century, um, the institutional confidence of the uni- of universities in general and the respect that they commanded in society had become such that their opinion counted. That I mean, this was respectable opinion. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's talk about this this concept of the uh, Pax Mongolica. It's, it's an interesting, interesting thing. Um, to, to nick a phrase from another period, what did the Mongols do for us? <laughs> well, if we're looking at the Mongol expansion from the West, so rather than, than looking at it from the, the Mongol point of view, but if you're looking at it from the West, it's kind of interesting. The first whispers of... Mongol expansion, the coming of the Mongols, uh, sort of crop up around the 1221 mark in during the Fifth Crusade. So the Fifth Crusaders in 1221 are down and trying to take Damietta in the Nile Delta and not having a particularly good time of it. And they're there for ages and it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a, a, a relentless siege that doesn't end especially well. Put the details of the Fifth Crusade aside. What's important is that during the Fifth Crusade, these whispers start to filter through that out there over the horizon, over the horizon in the east, is King David, Prester John, one of these mythical Christian warriors who's coming. And so, in, uh, and this seems a great a great boon and a great positive. And immediately people start thinking, well, how are we going to get in touch with this King David? Um, who's conquering everyone before that goes before him? Um, how can we take advantage of this? I, you know, this must be a good thing, right? You know, it's it's a great military power that is potentially an ally for uh, the, the force of the Crusaders against um, the Ayyubids in this case, uh, Al Kamil uh, Saladin's nephew. Of course, it doesn't turn out like that at all, but. There is this, there is still this initial sense that the this this what turns out to be a rapidly expanding Eastern Empire, uh, controlled by the Mongols, is going to be a good thing. There are wobbles in the 1240s, as we already said, when uh, it looks like that actually this is going to be very very dangerous indeed for um, for the West for Europe. By the 1260s, there's a sort of pragmatism, which which again sees the Mongols as potentially. Uh, allies to save the Crusader states from the Mamluks. So that, that's the first part of it, that this expanding empire looks, particularly from a Crusader perspective, like it might just be a good thing. It might be a positive if they can, if you can handle the Mongols correctly and maybe convert them to Christianity. But the other interesting 
thing to look at is the trade implications of the Mongol Empire. Because around the time, so 1260s, when the, the Mongol Empire has sort of reached is reaching its its territorial peak. There's a revolution in Constantinople. Now, in Constantinople in 1204, the Fourth Crusaders had, uh, had deposed the Byzantine emperor and placed a Latin emperor of Constantinople on the throne. That process is reversed in the 1260s, and there's a, a Greek Byzantine restoration in Constantinople. And that causes significant problems for trade because um, Latin Western traders are, there's a revenge, bloody revenge is being taken against them. Now, in Powers and Thrones, the way I've illustrated that is through the fortunes of the Polo family. Um, Niccolo, Maffeo, Polo, and uh, the most famous of the Polos, Marco Polo, because ambitious traders from the rising Italian merchant city republics, places like Venice, like Pisa, like Genoa, start to see the rise of the Mongols as good for business. And this is where the travels of Marco Polo is a very interesting source, because um, the travels of Marco Polo, Marco Polo is uh, is one of these adventurous um, uh, merchants who goes out, the Venetian merchant who goes out to the court of the Khan and stays there for 25 years, travelling around the Mongol Empire. Now, this this is where we get a view of what the Pax Mongolica actually looks like or what it does. It's, I mean, this is is sort of crass, uh, modern analogy, really, but it's a gigantic free trade zone effectively. And it guarantees trade or it stabilizes trade across a vast um, territorial expanse. And so Marco Polo, when he's in uh, the service of the Khans, is able to travel around um, observing. Uh, I mean, he, he he works for the Khans, but there are there are Western traders at work in the Mongol Empire and, and the trade is, is going back and forth between East and West during the, the Mongol Empire, Mongol, during the high point of the Mongol Empire. Uh, and the most interesting thing about the travels is the, for me, are the commercial notes that Marco Polo takes while he's in the uh, 25 years in the service of the Khans because he sees, you know, the best of everything. He knows where the best place to get you know, dried mango sweets is. He knows where the best place to buy horses is. He knows the best uh, place to buy this cloth and that cloth. And um, and he, he gives you the sense of the vastness of the Mongol Empire, really containing everything under the sun. Uh, and he's greedily interested in it um, to an extent as an aspiring Venetian merchant or, or certainly the the member of an aspiring Venetian merchant family. And so, so basically, as you sort of outlined in your book, it's kind of Marco Polo's work is, is a book of, of trade secrets and tips, isn't it, for, for people who want to flog stuff around the world. And that's quite interesting because it ties us into, into, into the next theme, the next chapter of your book, the, the commercial side of things, the commercial revolution, um, which is a, a, a sort of a, a historical concept. Um, you just mentioned those Italian city-states. We haven't really heard much about them. How, how, how have they come into the picture? When, when, where do they appear from and how do they foster this, this new interest in commerce? 
we could start the the, the story of them in in a number of different uh, points. By let's say by the time of the First Crusade, so the late eleventh century, the Venetians, Genoans, and Pisans, with Genoese and Pisans, have because particularly of their seafaring abilities and their geographical location on the coasts of northern Italy, looking you know east and west, they've started to exercise a a high degree of political power despite their tiny territorial footprint. And as the middle age, as the later middle ages unfold, you start to see uh Genoa, Venice, Pisa, Florence, um, Amalfi, among others, uh, as serious players in the, the the Mediterranean world, so they're they you know despite their tiny territorial size, as compared to let's say the kingdoms of England or France or whatever, um, they are the sort of rampaging capitalists, as it were, of the of the medieval world, and that gives them enormous power, and uh, they have strategic trading posts uh, or colonies around the world. Now, one one of the reasons. Um, so this draws them heavily into the Crusades. So from from the First Crusade uh, right through to the end of the Crusader states, you see very, very heavy interest on the part of the Italian city republics in maintaining a Crusader presence in the Near East uh, on the, the coastal littoral of what's now Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. Um, because this is this is a hypersensitive commercial space, and and within cities like Acre or Tyre, uh, Jaffa, Jerusalem's port, uh, you you always see little Italian colonies where they'll have trading privileges, and they will uh, bring fighting men. They'll have fighting galleys in order to defend those cities in order to keep their commercial position. There are also Italian um, merchant colonies in Constantinople, usually when um, conditions allow, uh, and in the ports, ports like Kaffa in the Black Sea. And that enables a sort of like chain of, um, of trading posts to operate from the Mediterranean into the Black Sea and joining up with, um, with Silk Road routes, uh, which will then enable them to import spices and and cloth from the Far East. So, uh, yeah, so so from about the 11th century, and certainly by the 12th and 13th century, they are extraordinarily powerful players. And and we should also include Florence, which isn't a maritime power, but Florence becomes incredibly important as a a banking power. Um, Well, yeah, let's pick up on that, because as you talk about in in your book, Florence... Uh, is kind of the centre of, of a lot of banking uh, activity. And I, I suppose that leads us into talking about the innovative financial instruments that were developed to enable these uh, these commercial players to operate in, a, in, a, in a, an environment when actual physical travel took a long time, particularly you know, when you've got this, this vast distance that you might be wanting to, to, to track goods across. Uh, they introduced new methods which allowed them to not have to physically move from place to place, but whereby they could uh, move their resources and their and their money to make uh, best advantage of, of what was going on. 
Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, so you see, well, a good example to illustrate this and one that I I use in the book is the case of England. So um, England's involvement with Italian banks in the 13th and 14th century is a super interesting way of seeing how sophisticated the medieval uh, economy gets in the 12th and 13th century. So what's England good at in the 12th and 13th century? Well, what what does it produce? Well, its biggest export um, commodity is wool. Uh, England's a great place to graze sheep. And there are lots of monasteries, uh, lots of particularly Cistercian monasteries, where sheep grazing is, is big business. Um, exporting wool for um, for manufacture into cloth, often in Flanders, and then that cloth will then be sold in Italy often, um, but in other markets around Europe. Uh, this is in such enormous business that the crown maintains a, a very, very close interest in the import-export of wool sacks. Uh, there's, it's always a huge part of government revenue, taxing wool sacks as they go out of the country. And inevitably, it becomes interesting to other rich merchants around Europe. Now, uh, think about the practicalities for a second if you want to buy wool, turn it into cloth and sell it, buy English wool and sell it and sell the cloth manufactured from it in Italy, uh, that requires, in an age without easy credit transfer and the internet and stuff, um, quite a lot of moving, or it could require quite a lot of moving stuff around and moving people around and moving salesmen around. But what develops in uh, in Italy, and particularly in Florence during the 12th and 13th century, is a growing, uh, is, is, is uh, financial and commercial institutions and instruments which make this all much easier. And the formation of companies, you have the, the uh, development of um, insurance, and you have the, uh, you start to have mechanisms for credit transfer without actually moving coin from one place to the other. So an Italian bank that's interested in the trade between wool and cloth in Flanders, England, and Italy, that triangle, uh, might, you know, so a company like the Frescobaldi or the Bardi, these are big sort of merchant banks are into this kind of um, into this kind of trade, might have a situation where they advance money to um an English crown that is eager to go and fight wars. So they might say, okay, well, we'll lend you the money up front, but we're going to take that out of, uh, we're going to either take it in, part of it paid back in wool, or we'll take over the job of um, collecting the wool tax on behalf of the English crown, and we'll take some of the proceeds of that. Uh, they might also then double that up with uh, subcontracting tax collecting duties in Italy from the Pope and also having private banking customers in Italy so they can move money around on paper without actually moving it around very much um, physically. So you start to get this really quite sophisticated um, transactions with in England, you'll have an agent for the, you know, let's say the Frescobaldi or the Bardi or whichever bank is in favour and hasn't been bankrupted by uh, by dud loans uh, not repaid by the English Crown, in situ 
in positions of, of quite high political influence within England, and they'll be keeping in contact with agents from the same company in Italy and in Flanders in order to do the deals that moves the money, moves the cloth um, around with the minimum of travelling by individuals and actually the minimum of travelling in in goods either. And you have to start to have in the, market, in the cloth markets in Flanders, trading in futures, trading in um, the notion of I will buy wool at a certain price at a certain time and then laying off those trades. So things that, that we think of as probably quite modern financial um, transactions are at play and, and at work in the 12th and 13th centuries. So it's, it's interesting, yeah, listening to you, you talk, we're hearing not so much about kings and, and potentates in this in this section, but more about merchants and commerce. And, and, and there's a line in your book, the commercial revolution placed power in the hands of new agents besides emperors, popes and kings. It allowed the merchants to assume a prominent place in medieval society and culture. So we've got money equating much more closely to power now, I guess, particularly in, in manifested in those Italian city-states where they're able to hold political power and do things above and beyond their size, as you said. Moving from money equation to power, what about knowledge uh, uh, equating to power and, and the rise of university? So just drop us into this university story. When did they start to become important? Are they linked to this commercial revolution or is that a separate um, development? Well, they're somewhat linked uh, geographically. They're somewhat linked by the fact that as you have a rising... Um, you have a more an increasingly sophisticated economy. You have an increase increasing needs for um, financial services and legal services. And so the origin, so the the, the interesting institutional hyphen intellectual development in the later Middle Ages, the rise of the universities in the eleventh century. Uh, the first university is in Bologna. It's a law school, effectively in Bologna. And one of the reasons that it's in Bologna is because Bologna sits sort of halfway between the papacy and the uh, the Holy Roman Emperors in Germany, who are constantly at each other's throats and as well as fighting each other, suing each other. So you need uh, lots of lawyers um, geographically in between those two groups. But um, after Bologna, you see the, the University of Paris, the University of Oxford, and then in the century or so after, those are founded, you start to see universities springing up in most major cities across uh, Western Europe. And the universities, as I say, Bologna um, specialises in law, uh, but they exist to um, educate that's higher education in the way almost that we think of it now. Uh, so there is, in the Middle Ages, and certainly in the later Middle Ages, this starts to become um, a career that is purely knowledge-based. Now, the need for highly educated people springs partly from the church, which needs um, literate clerics, partly from government bureaucracies, who need literate and numerate clerics, um, but but partly from a growing sense that the pursuit of knowledge per se is um, is beneficial to society, and that institutions that perform the business of uh, of teaching and expanding the frontiers of human knowledge are something that is worth having, and that's an idea that is fundamental to the way that Western society and the Western mind 
still operates today, even if there are constantly, uh, in, in England at any rate, there's constant sense that there are attacks on the whole idea of, of university as a place where you go to study rather than somewhere you go to just become an engineer and go and make things. And there, we do have this, this retained sense from the later Middle Ages that uh, the pursuit of knowledge in universities uh, is, is an important part of society. Now, um, allied to that in the later Middle Ages is also, and this, is, this ties into the Crusades, is also a flood back into Western Europe of the works of writers who hadn't really been seen in Western Europe for hundreds of years, and chief among them, Aristotle. Now, the sort of ancient Greek, the pagan philosophers, had gone out of fashion at the end of the uh, early Middle Ages as knowledge became the monopoly of uh, an increasingly narrow-minded um, Roman Catholic Church, and as knowledge was the preserve of um, of monks in monasteries. Now, universities are still heavily uh, Christian organisations, and if you think about an Oxbridge College today, of course it is. You know, the college was initially a college of priests. The college uh, it was designed for um, for churchmen to study. However, there is a growing appetite in the later Middle Ages for, or growing comfort at any rate, for the works of um, of pagan scholars. A lot of that uh, of their works had been preserved in Islamic libraries and libraries in places like Cordoba, um, in southern Spain, central southern Spain, um, which fell fell into Christian hands during the Reconquista. So the advance of the Crusade in Spain and Portugal brought back under the control of Christian kings enormous libraries. And there's a, there's a translation movement where scholars rush to these libraries and start translating out of, out of Arabic into Latin um, works that hadn't been seen for a long time and studying them and then starting trying to... And then a big drive in, uh, in scholarship in 12th and 13th centuries and 14th century, I suppose, as well, is is the, the job of squaring the insights and the dialectical models and, and styles of argument from Aristotle and the ancients with the traditional interpretations of Christian scripture. How does all that manifest itself in power? Well, the example that I use in Powers and Thrones is the Templars. Now, the fall of the Templars, which is something I've written about at length elsewhere, in Paris, driven by the French crown at the start of the 14th century. That's a, it's a story that's been told um, by me and by others many times. Effectively, it's about the King of France and his ministers deciding they want to bring down the uh, the Knights Templar for various reasons. But um, in order to do that, through judicial, they have to go through a judicial process um, in Paris and elsewhere. And in 1307-8, when they start to try and take the Templars down, one of the first organisations that uh, William de Nogaret, Philip IV of France's um, leading minister, one of the first institutions he goes to in order to have a judgment, a sort of pre-judgment pronounced against the Templars, which he thinks will be, will be damning to the order, is the University of Paris. Because by the early 14th century, 
um, the institutional confidence of the univer- of universities in general and the respect that they commanded in society had become such that their opinion counted. That I mean, this was respectable opinion. So the story really of the rise of the universities is uh, institutionalizing knowledge outside the sort of ad hoc studies of individual monks in monasteries with a teaching function, with the purpose of providing and making bureaucrats, with the purpose of providing and making thinkers per se, but which very quickly uh, creates these institutions that have um, high, high social prestige and whom you turn to when you want a sort of degree of of certainty about something that you're doing politically. And that, for me, is is an interesting form of power that um, that goes beyond the pursuit of knowledge in and of itself. Um, as we said before, your book is is in a way a meditation on power and, and, and how power is manifested. And um, two of the biggest, most obvious symbols of power that still remain to us today from the Middle Ages are buildings, castles and cathedrals. Um, so tell us about those. How, 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 how were they used by, uh, by the people in power to demonstrate their power? Uh, and, and how do they fit into this bigger picture of the changing and perhaps more slightly sophisticated nature of society as we move into this period? Yeah, well, one of the, one of the ways that we manifest power um, or have manifested power as humans throughout the ages is through buildings. And if you think about the sort of the uh, the skyscraper race in I don't know um, petrodollar rich Gulf states today, you know the, the centre they're going to have first you've got the um, oh the, the I mean the Burj Al Khalifa you know the gigantic one in Dubai and then Saudi are building the Saudi Tower which is going to be a kilometre high. It's it's a it's a it's a really elemental way of expressing um, wealth and through wealth power. And that's no different in the Middle Ages. And the two, I think the two most iconic types of building that remain with us from the Middle Ages are castles and cathedrals. And uh, although I've, I've tried to, you know, I have in, in Powers and Thrones, spread the, um, the view of the Middle Ages far beyond England, which is the country I, I, I wrote about a lot in my earlier books, um, I think it is to you can return quite profitably to England to look at how pa- how buildings are used to manifest power. Um, so let's take castles. If we look at Edward I, Edward Longshanks, Hammer of the Scots, um, in power uh, from the 1270s through the first to 1307, pursues a military project. Which is which amounts to the subjugation of the whole of the British Isles, or the attempted subjugation of the whole of the British Isles, and it, it, it's um, it's ruled by the English Crown. Uh, the Scottish Wars of Independence are one thing, but the the most successful part probably of of this drive of Edwards to uh, extend the power of the English Crown across the whole Br- the British Isles is in Wales, where he uh, captures and executes the last. Um, Prince of Wales, last native Prince of Wales, and then in order to stamp his authority on Snow, particularly on Snowdonia, traditionally the hardest part of of Wales for English kings to venture into, let alone control, he builds that incredible ring of stone castles, many of which still stand more or less complete or complete in the form that they were, the builders stopped working on them today. So I'm thinking about um, Bomaris, 
Conway, Rutland, um, Carnarvon, and so on, uh, Flint. All of these castles along, uh, sort of around Snowdonia in northern Wales, are they, they serve two purposes. In one sense, they are military installations designed to garrison troops, designed to um, actually hold that territory for the English crown. But they go way beyond that in their architectural conception. And so it's not, these are not just garrisons for troops. These are gigantic statements of English power designed. You know, the, the engineer architect who oversees the project, Master James of St. George, Edward's favourite architect, uh, has this monument, literally monumental vision of how power can be stamped onto the landscape, scarred into the landscape. And if you go to, I mean, Carnarvon is my favourite of all those castles. If you go there today, it, it still dominates. It dominates the town, it dominates that part of the world. It's architecturally supposed to um, evoke the old walls of Constantinople. It was, you know, it was, it was the place that Edwards the first sent his wife, Eleanor of Castile, to give birth to his youngest son and eventual successor, Edward II. So it has this sort of Im- uh, power in the imagination as well as in its architecture. That's you know, that's a secular form of, of uh, architecture as power. We see the same across England and indeed across the whole of, of Western Europe, excluding, it, well, no, not excluding Italy, but Italy's slightly different, with the, the movement to Gothic cathedrals as well. You know, this, this turn... Um, 12th, 13th centuries towards building up, building very, very, very high. Um, somewhere I'm going next week uh, when I'm speaking up in Lincoln, I always go when I go to Lincoln, is Lincoln Cathedral, once the tallest building in the world, taller than even the, the Great Pyramids in Egypt until its spire fell down in the 16th, 16th century, I think. Um, this is, I mean, and we've got dozens of them across the across England, and let alone all those that are in France. These enormous, soaring um, cathedrals, in which the technology, because of buttresses on the outside, allows walls to be extremely thin, very, very high, and you can put these huge sheets of stained glass in them, designed to evoke heaven on earth. This again is an expression of power, not so much the the, uh, the military secular power that you see expressed in Edward I's castles. But in a uh, the the power of the church, and it, it in its majesty, in its wealth, in its um, in its all uh, all governing um, spiritual magnificence, uh, and and these things are still with us today. And they are they, in a way they are the most tangible, the most relatable relics of the whole medieval world. And so, if we're thinking about power, power over time, I don't think there's any anything uh, stronger and more. Um, more immediately comprehensible than castles and cathedrals. You've been listening to Dan Jones, who is the author of Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages. And as a reminder, if you'd like to watch the video and the extended audience Q&A of this session, then you can do that at our website, historyextra.com forward slash video, though you will need to be a subscriber to the site to be able to access that content. And the final episode in our Masterclass series is on Revolution, AD 1348 to 1527. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. To find more of our history content and podcasts, go to historyextra.com. A 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.